The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Welcome to What You Missed This Week. I'm Joe Weisenthal. This podcast has some of our favorite interviews from the Daily Market Close show that I co-anchor along with Romaine Bostic and Caroline Hyde. What'd you miss? It's the perfect way to kick off your weekend. This week, we circled back with a guest we've had on before, Roshan Patel, Vice President of Institutional Lending at Genesis, a full-service digital currency prime brokerage. We talked with Ro about crypto trading and why it gets so wild on the weekends. Because, you know, crypto never sleeps. It's 24-7. So we asked him why it feels like the weekend has a different flavor of trading. Um, you know, the weekend in crypto, it's, you know, there's lower liquidity. There's still a very human driven market to it. So, you know, there's like less market making going on, less sort of algorithmic trading happening. So just tends to kind of lead to moves that can be a little bit more uh, drawn out, let's say. Is there an argument to be made to actually shut things down on the weekend? <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't mind, honestly. Uh, my personal life wouldn't at least. I hear you. Um, second that from my side of the equation, but I, I'm interested, Rowan, <laughs> what the force of the selling is like and mm. who is selling. I'm hearing a lot of, we were just hearing from Katie Greifel at the start of the show being like, oh, well, people are getting out of crypto and they're going into meme stocks. I mean, is retail to answer for this or what is actually the pressure downwards, do you think? Yes, yeah, so that's a, you know, that's like the age old question here. Every time the market sells off, it's like, who's responsible? What, what's causing it? And people really like to have like a, an answer for that. Um, the flows we're seeing on the Genesis desk are extremely skewed towards the buy side. Uh, both like high net worths, institutions, but also the retail apps that we're kind of piping into in terms of uh, aggregating flow. So really, we're just seeing buyers down here. So I was talking to Joe about this the other day. On like Sunday when we were working there, uh, I was like, who's selling? And everyone kept asking it on the desk, like, you know, kind of what's causing this, this sort of move down? So it's really hard to point to like any one given aspect of the market, whether it's retail traders moving out of stocks or miners in Asia that, you know, need to, you know, sell for whatever reasons. But um, I, I would just say, you know, there's, there's, it's really difficult to kind of nail down why this is moving like this, but crypto is not really, you know, uh, foreign to kind of having moves like this. And if you want to, and I'll caveat that with like, you know, that's like, you know, we don't really know. You could theorize uh, some extra spot pressure in the market for yeah. a variety of reasons. Um, one is that basis trade that we were talking about in uh, like maybe a month ago here on the show that's come in a lot, right? So it's collapsed a lot. So a lot of people that are long spot, short futures, how do they sort of unwind that trade? They have to sell spot, buy futures. So that leads to a little bit of an extra offering spot, kind of hangs over the market a little bit there. Granted, you know, that buy is still there in the futures leg. So it's not like a, you know, net selling by any means, but definitely impacts spot a little bit for sure. So this morning you tweeted something, um, you said post-expiry sell pressure for the first time in a while. And of yeah. course there is this explosion and proliferation of um, Bitcoin and crypto derivatives, futures, swaps, other forms of, uh, you know, very sophisticated instruments. 
To what degree are those becoming, like in stocks, we're like a quadruple witching and stuff like that. To what degree are key moments in the expiry of derivatives becoming um, key flips in uh, price trends? Yeah, there's definitely a little bit more activity uh, on the derivatives expiries. Uh, you know, this morning I tweeted that. Granted, it's the May expiry, so it's like, it's not as big as the June one or the March one, so it matters a little bit less. It's just like kind of after the ones that we saw in March and, and even April, um, you know, the, 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 the general trend is after expiry, you know, kind of happens, there's a little bit of lid kind of uh, lifted on price. Uh, obviously this time it, was, it went the other way, but granted given this expiry is not a huge OI one relative to June or even separate D's uh, when those roll around, um, you know, I, I don't think it, it matters too much for, for the direction of the market. I think, uh, yeah, you know, we'll, we'll see when it, when it hits one of the, the bigger quarterly experts. Yeah. So but broadly speaking, these things are, you know, much more important now than they were. Yeah, so we were just showing a chart of some of the 30-day volatility. Uh, the most interesting thing about that chart, of course, is that while volatility has picked up, it's nowhere near where we saw uh, back in that uh, 2017 uh, era here. With regards to how Genesis sort of keeps itself uh, prepared for these types of movements and uh, maintains liquidity here, uh, what's the general preparation right now? Hmm. Yeah, so Genesis right now in this moment has never had uh, as good of a sort of asset basis as across Bitcoin, dollars, ETH. Um, you know, we're not really shy about our loan book value. You know, right now it's around nine, ten billion dollars in active loans outstanding. But the reserves across the top three are, you know, north of billions of dollars, uh, some, you know, quite quite a bit higher. So in terms of like a balance sheet health perspective, this is the strongest we've ever been. And we're pretty much prepared for an 80% move up or an 80% move down. It doesn't really matter to us. Obviously, I think probabilistically, you know, there's one of those is more likely than the other, but um, you know, we're really ready for both sides of the for all sides of it and you know kind of when we sold off last week um and the week prior even too the the, the nature of the deaths kind of like the, the the frenzy of it yeah it was hectic you know everyone was really focused and wired in but you know we didn't really have that many panic selling going on you know we're seeing buyers the whole way through then we drove more into crypto and adoption of the asset class by retail traders we spoke with Yoni Asia, the founder and CEO of eToro, an Israel-based competitor to Robinhood, which bills itself as the world's leading social trading platform. eToro registered 3.1 million new users in the first quarter of the year and executed 210 million trades, a 233% increase over last year, driven by strong demand for stocks in crypto. eToro Group just filed confidentially with the SEC for its proposed business combination with the blank check company, FinTech Acquisition Corp, led by the serial dealmaker, Betsy Cohen. I think, first of all, every asset is uh, distinctive and every asset class is, uh, is different. Uh, I think there are sort of uh, confluence of circumstances that are combining both of these uh, very interesting trends. And that is generally a generational buying moment where you have uh, customers from 100 different countries. We see customers from 100 different country, countries that are interested, whether it's in these meme stocks or in Tesla or in Facebook or in Apple or in Bitcoin or in Doge. So you see these global movements of people talking about the markets and understanding that they have that sudden impact on the markets as a group. Um, and I think in generally, again, it's caused by the fact that there's zero interest rates uh, and uh, there's a wide knowledge and a wide discussion over the fact uh, that people now understand better what is inflation and that governments are pr printing unprecedented amounts so of money. So people are buying Doge because of that? 
I, I think again, you know, different trends, different communities. Right. Uh, you know, we've seen a surge just in Q1 this year. Uh, we we just publicly announced we we saw 3.1 million new registered users into our social investment platform uh, in Q1 this year versus the best year we've ever had, which was 2020, where we saw 5.2 million registered yeah. users. So there's a a definitive trend of retail investors from all around the world want to find interesting investments. Now, some of them uh, are, are real interesting around their communities or around their value, whether it's tech stocks or trends like renewable energy. And some of them, I have to admit, you know, it's hard even for me after 25 years in capital markets and hmm. uh, now 10 years in crypto markets, it took me a time to understand the phenomena called Dogecoin. Uh, but, but each of these are very interesting as you dive, that, that dip dive in and, and learn about them. Well, so what do you say to some of the critics uh, here? I mean, you mentioned Dogecoin and the idea that investors are sort of looking for uh, something creative to get into. There are a lot of people, particularly those who come from maybe a different generation of capital markets saying, oh, these retail investors, they need to be protected from themselves. You need more regulation to sort of stop them from taking these types of risk here. I mean, do you have an argument against uh, that type of call? I think, again, we've been promoting for the past 14 years now with 20 million registered users, the democratization of wealth management and democratization of investing. Uh, I, I sincerely believe it is important for retail investors and generally for the public to invest in the market and to participate in the market. I think the fact that more people are participating in the market, that we see a rise in the volumes of retail investors in the market, I think that's a very positive thing for the markets. It's education. Pe people learning how to trade and invest is a part of their education. I think as part of that, they also need to understand risk management and diversification. Those are key elements that we're promoting. Some aspects of the meme uh, trading are wrong or people have misconceptions. People think there are some conspiracies about, you know, halts and short selling and stuff like that. Do you worry that people get really invested in some story and then if they lose money that that will leave them with a sour taste on the market that what looks like, say, education uh, is going to end up backfiring? Uh I think there is a there should be a general concern of what happens in case of a bear market. Yeah. Uh, I think uh, all, all of the trading platforms and investment platforms that have surged in their growth are thinking what happens if uh, this dot com bubble burst, right? Uh, I think we're, we're in a different place today than the year 2000. I, I, I fell in love in capital markets and started trading in 96 and 97 yeah. and traded through the dot com era. And I think the difference is today that uh, we we are all in people's phones. We're able to communicate with people. And again, the the most important element people need to remember is diversification. Yeah. Is is Bitcoin an interesting trade? Yes, but you need to understand it right. needs to be a part of a diversified portfolio. Uh, uh, you know, yeah. I, I admit, and you can see because my uh, portfolio yeah. is public as well, so you can see it on Toro. I bought some GME. I bought some AMC, I bought some Dogecoin, but right. with a small part of my portfolio to follow that trend. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, 
influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Now, this week was another big one for the meme stocks. AMC went all in in its chief meme status, embracing the retail trading army. The movie theater chain announcing it will reward its small-time supporters who have been instrumental in AMC's wild, logic-defying 1,400% rally with perks such as special screenings and free popcorn. The company is taking advantage of these meteoric gains by raising $230 million directly from one of its main creditors, Mudger Capital Management, and shoring up its finances. We all got some perspective from Chad Bynan, a senior analyst at Macquarie Capital who covers gaming, lodging, and theaters, as well as Bloomberg Cross Asset reporter Katie Greifeld. We spoke with them on Wednesday ahead of AMC's announcement that it is planning to sell up to 11.55 million shares to raise hundreds of millions of dollars, which sent shares falling by as much as 34% on Thursday, triggering multiple halts, although it then eventually gained a lot of it back. And we started by asking Chad if Wednesday's 95% gain was a result of investors seeing the net present value of AMC's future cash flows. Thanks, Joe. Uh, I don't believe so. Oh. Although the, the Memorial Day weekend uh, you know, results were actually encouraging. We were excited to talk about it and write about it. And then, you know, that really didn't matter after we saw 25% gains yesterday. And then today is obviously blockbuster performance. Uh, Chad, I mean, in all seriousness, I mean, there is obviously sort of a rebound play that a lot of, that some people, I should say, are, are banking on here uh, with regards to this stock. There's also an opportunity here for management, given the run-up in share price. And I'm wondering if you see ways that they could maybe leverage this opportunity to actually ensure that this is more than just a meme stock and that it is an actual viable growth business. Sure. Yeah. No, I think I think that's a great point. You have Adam Aaron, who, you know, everyone knows as a, a great marketing officer. He's the CEO of the company. He's been there for four or five years. He was actually chief marketing officer at United, and he was chief marketing officer at Hyatt. He actually claims that he created the loyalty program at Hyatt. He went on to run Norwegian Cruise Lines and Philadelphia 76ers. So he certainly understands the con consumer and he understands marketing. Today's announcement in terms of connecting with these shareholders, potentially giving them discounts on popcorn, maybe tickets at the movie theaters, getting them to come to the box office. I think that was a huge positive. And then the bigger point is, can you take advantage of where the stock price is right now? Obviously, they raised equity earlier this week, uh, about $250 million. Uh, they have $450 million of deferred leases that their landlords have let them defer. And then they have about $5 billion of conventional debt. And then the last thing is, this could be an industry uh, ripe for consolidation. So if he could raise equity and solve one of those three problems, mm -hmm. I think he would come out of this in a very good position. Uh, Katie, I want to go to you. I mean, how much of your analysis now is sort of just trying to pick up on social media? I mean, it's sort of nice, <laughs> you know, to hear like, oh, their debt position and people mm -hmm. coming back to their theaters. But so much of this seems to just be driven by like sheer, obviously, like sentiment. Absolutely. I mean, I think AMC 100K was trending again. So 
if you look at the shares at $62, that's pretty cheap. But at this point, <laughs> we're really just trying to track the mechanics. So if you look at short interest, for example, AMC short interest is still at 20% of shares outstanding. That's lower than it was in January, but it was only, or it's 19% today. It was 20% yeah. yesterday. So you aren't seeing really seeing uh, short sellers capitulate yet here. They're in a lot of pain, but they're not backing down. So if they did capitulate, you know, take down some of that, those, that short interest, that could add another leg to this rally. So there's still multiple uh, cylinders that could fire here. Uh, multiple, okay, there's multiple <laughs> cylinders. I, I like the way you put it here. There's also, of course, uh, the potential this could sort of fall back to earth pretty quickly here. There are a lot of people, I mean, we talk about the Mudger Capital the other day here. The idea that they basically jumped in this basically for a quick flip, uh, it benefited AMC as a company and it benefited Mudrick. I'm wondering how many folks here are just looking for a quick flip and then this is now goes back down to being whatever it was, uh, you know, three months ago. I wish I had firm numbers on that, but I would imagine it's something like 90% of people yeah. are just looking to flip this. And I mean, there is some fundamental case you could say mm. with Mudrick, you know, the share sale, maybe they'll be able to trim their debt load. But I really, maybe the fundamental picture might have changed a little bit for AMC. Not, yeah. you know, what, 3,000% in the share worth. But yeah. we'll see if this thing comes down to earth because we were saying it would in January and February. We weren't, but people were. And here we are. You said it was going to go to $68.79. <laughs> so good call by you. Chad, I want to uh, bring you back in. You know, how do you approach your approach to the stock? I mean, obviously, like we can talk about the fundamentals and 100 out of 100 people will say it's hard to justify the price. So like when you're like talking to clients, like what is the sort of useful insight that you can when sort of like this mob takes over a stock and it seemingly disconnects it so far from anything resembling the traditional fundamentals that an analyst would look at? Sure, it's difficult. Uh, last year, it's it's crazy. Heading into, into the pandemic, and actually at the, at the beginning, months of the pandemic, I was the bull on the street, and I have a $6 price target. But my <laughs> fundamental views have been, you know, I don't think the box office is dead. Actually, heading into to the pandemic, the nine months prior to that, the emission revenues were almost record-setting. So that data, if you look at it, tells me that Netflix and Amazon and streaming hasn't killed the industry. So we expect 2022 and 2023 to actually look like 2019, maybe record levels. I know some of my competitors are much more bearish. They expect a 10 to 20% decline. Yeah. So that's the fundamental view. But to your point, you know, how do we help out institutional investors yeah. um, understand what to do from here? Generally, what we do is we point them to other companies in the sector like Cinemark and IMAX that we think are very cheap on a free cash flow, on an EVD basis, yeah. and they're going to ride the, the similar tide. So we hope that there would be a re-rate up yeah. for some of those uh, versus recommending AMC but, at this but, point. But, but Chad, there, there's a lot yeah. of talk about comparing sort of this rebound uh, in terms of a theater going rebound uh, to the sort of pre-pandemic levels in 2019. But this really wasn't necessarily a healthy industry in 2019. There was a lot of talk here about the need for consolidation, the idea that a lot of these companies didn't really have the pricing power either with consumers or the power with regards to the studios that supply their films here. So I'm just trying to figure out what's really changed. We're coming in an environment now where we do have a lot more options on streaming. Uh, a lot of us are perfectly fine paying Disney 30 bucks to watch uh, the latest new release at home on the couch rather than going out to the theater. What's changed? I think the, the big thing and the way that we approach it is there's companies that obviously put on you know more conventional debt and more importantly, um, 
egregious leases that they just can't get out of. So operating any business in Manhattan or LA or San Francisco or Chicago is certainly an expensive business. Cinemark decided to go kind of outside that bullseye. So they have smaller rents as a percentage of the revenue. So one, we look at companies that haven't put themselves in that position. Again, AMC could improve that if they raise equity and decide to give some of those landlords. Secondly, um, you know, we think that emission revenue trends actually haven't been that bad. And then if you look at concessions, a company like Cinemark, they've grown concession per head for almost 50 quarters in a row. So 13 or 14 straight years, every quarter, people who've walked in the door have spent more at the concession counter. Mm. And I don't think there's many restaurant companies that can, you know, say the same thing. So we almost look at some of these companies as restaurant companies in some ways, as long as it's not too much of a bleed from a studio standpoint. But that's kind of, you know, how, how we're thinking about the industry. Uh, Katie, what happened to GameStop? Do people still talk about them? I don't know. Not really. This is sort of like, is there, you know, like... <laughs> I mean, that was, you know, so a few months ago. I mean, if for a while you did see the two trade in tandem. And certainly if you look at the entire meme universe, it's been rallying along with uh, AMC. But really it's AMC in charge here. And uh, I mean, that announcement from AMC today that it was going to have special screenings, free popcorn. I mean, that just solidified AMC's place at the top. Yeah. So GameStop, it's still rallying, but it's it's no AMC. Well, I want to then, I, Chad, the last question is going to go to you, Chad, and this is partly to Katie's point here, too. The idea that the management has actually sort of embraced this, uh, they've yeah. kind of embraced this frenzy and leaned in to the retail investors here. We've seen this to a smaller extent with Elon Musk and Tesla and a few other companies out there that have basically said, you know, we don't necessarily need to sort of bow down to the institutional investors and the hedge funds. Maybe if we just bow down to the retail traders, that's enough to keep the energy going. Do you think that's a smart strategy? Uh, I think it's the right strategy for them. Adam Aaron actually conducted an hour plus long interview with uh, Trey from Trey's Trades, who has a lot of followers. I found that interview to be pretty fascinating. I think he's choosing those things over traditional, um, you know, sell-side broker conferences because over 80% of his clients are retail. Um, we'll see what happens with this uh, with this big uh, vote in July. You know, he's looking to to add to, um, you know, $500 million to, to a shelf filing here. Five, I'm sorry, 500 million shares. Mm -hmm. If he's able to get that done, which the way to get that done is through the retail vote, then you can start doing some things and kind of bring the instos back in. But I think right now your audience is the retail customer, the retail investor, and that's who you cater to. And you still got that $6 price target here? I do. All right. Well, We're always reevaluating. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. And we wrapped up the week by talking with Doug Merritt, the CEO of infrastructure software company Splunk. That's off the back of its first quarter earnings. 
Revenue came in above estimates with strong growth in ARR and cloud ARR, but its outlook for second quarter annual recurring revenue was below expectations, which sunk the stock. Shares fell about 8% on Thursday, Splunk down 33% this year, making it the weakest performer of the NASDAQ 100 index. Uh, we were incredibly excited about the quarter that we just posted. Uh, we showed in very strong growth, 83% cloud growth, uh, getting to us to 877 million in cloud ARR, over 200 customers that are paying us a million dollars more a year in cloud to complement the almost 540 customers that are paying us a million a year or more overall for our services. So super high growth, 39% ARR growth for the company as a whole. 83% for cloud. Um, I, I focus on customers. The, I, the stock, I cannot control. Right. Uh, customer yeah. service, I can. And customers are voting for Splunk. We are, right. We're doing extraordinarily well in the market. All right, Doug, well, let's talk a little bit more about those customers. I mean, you did see some ability, I guess, to shift a lot of those customers into the cloud services that you're offering here. I guess some of the concern amongst investors is the cost to do that here. When do you expect to see maybe a little bit more right-sizing versus uh, with regards to cost versus uh, the actual revenue that you'll be taking in from the new uh, services? Yeah, we've, we've been able to take our cloud uh, margins, our overall footprint from very low to over 60% in the past two years. Uh, we remain committed to a 70% target exiting this year, 75% or higher overall. Uh, so we're driving efficiencies with the cloud. Uh, some of the spend this quarter was really very proactive. We did some pull-in spend on cloud infrastructure. Uh, we had a really good quarter that surpassed our expectations. Um, that had some commission expense as we amortized commissions over the, the uh, year in front of us, uh, which, which ultimately is a positive sign, right? The, the reps are doing well, they're doing better than the plan. Um, so uh, I think it was a blip on the, on the spend side based on the strong Q1 that we kicked off the year with. Uh, you, you said it was a blip, but the stock, it's not just today, it has faded for a while. And again, I go back to, you know, thinking about this time last year, we just had this incredible boom in anything that was related to tech, uh, cloud, anything corporate CapEx. Are you seeing any just general slowdowns or anything, or is it full speed ahead, the likes of which was really hot prior to COVID hitting, and for many companies, uh, seemed to accelerate in uh, 2020? We, we actually saw the bit of a slowdown, a few more checks before doing purchases, more Q2, Q3. Hmm. What we've seen in Q4 and now Q1 and what we're seeing into our Q2, which we're a month into, um, is the continued tailwinds post-pandemic of the realization that you have to be digital. You've got to get your business online, and that has to happen much quicker than people thought. Um, and some uh, general loosening as we all get to see the shortages that we're dealing with, supply chain issues, as economies are opening back up around the world. So this shift to cloud uh, is propelled by data. We are the absolute king in bringing together massive amounts of data so that we can help cybersecurity teams, infrastructure management teams, application development teams do that critical work of getting their business online and keeping it safe as they do that, which sadly we've seen is harder and harder with all the hacks that are happening. Uh, with regards to uh, your own uh, employee base here, with regards to just recruiting talent here, uh, what type of challenges, if at all, have you seen there? Yeah, that actually was another super strong highlight for us the past couple of quarters. Uh, we recently added Teresa Carlson as our president to go to market, literally one of the best go to market leaders in the history of the industry. Uh, she took the AWS public sector business from zero to $10 billion during her, ten her tenure there. Uh, we just announced the addition of Sean Bice, 
who is the leader on top of all the data products across the AWS backbone. Again, running a 10 plus billion dollar business, world-class product leader. And that's just two of the 15 to 20 key executives that we've been adding, not just from AWS, but from Salesforce, from Google, from Okta, from VMware, uh, from really, really great companies that also are, are highly cloud savvy uh, as we continue to meet the demands of scale as we grow this company. Doug, I'm glad you brought up cybersecurity. Of course, there have been several incidents in the news uh, lately about ransomware and other vulnerabilities that we've seen to key companies and infrastructure. Do news events like that create a sort of, how quick is the feedback between awareness of that, everybody realizing perhaps that they're more vulnerable if anyone can get hit, and then uh, uh, more spend on areas uh, related to security? Pretty quick, pretty quick. People are pretty tuned in the news right now. Um, I do think that with the Colonial Pipeline and now the meat uh, uh, ransomware issue, um, we're seeing companies that may not have been as focused on cybersecurity now realize that everybody is vulnerable and that there are some significant impacts if you do not have the right data uh, framework to help give you visibility pre, during and post attack. Um, within our current customer base, it's been a help as well. M most of them have been able to get through this much more quickly um, and it has resulted in a little bit of an increase for many of them uh, as they now realize, oh geez, I, I didn't have those data elements going through Splunk. Maybe I should add those also um, as I'm wading through the after effects of a solar winds issue or, or one of the other uh, you know, horrible incidents that we've all been reading about and dealing with in the news. And that's it for What You Missed This Week. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe and rate us at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can catch our show every weekday from 3.30 to 5 p.m. on Bloomberg TV and from 4 to 5 p.m. on Twitter. Thanks for listening and have a great week. Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for The Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative, investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash Future Investor slash radio.